Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Afghanistan alert. The Taliban take control of the second largest city. Trade turmoil. China's COVID spread disrupts the world's third largest port. And Disney versus Delta. Newly opened theme parks and Disney Plus push profits higher. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Well, welcome once again to First Move and another jam-packed show for you, as always, this Friday. And it's definitely no freaky Friday for Disney. The entertainment giant, as I mentioned, posting an almost 50% rise in third quarter sales, driven by theme park reopenings and a stronger-than-expected jump in Disney Plus subscribers, in particular in India. All the details coming right up. And speaking of classic Disney movies, the stock market has been looking pretty enchanted, with the Dow and the S&P hitting their third straight record high yesterday. Investors shrugging off the week's hot pricing data too. There's certainly nothing frozen about the global inflation outlook. However, for now, investors are, yes, letting it go and choosing to focus more on encouraging jobs data and strong reopening profits. That optimism on display again this Friday. Wall Street trying for a Bambi-like bounce. Europe on track for its fourth week of gains, the strongest rally there in over 20 years. German wholesale prices, however, spiking over 11% last month. That, in fact, is the biggest rise since the 1970s. And we stay in Germany too. Adidas higher after selling its underperforming Reebok unit to authentic brands for $2.5 billion. And actually, that's less than it originally paid for it. In the United States, meanwhile, Airbnb seeing a 300% Q2 revenue jump. That's a reopening recovery, but they also warned that the Delta variant could impact sales going forward. Shares down, in fact, around 2% pre-market. It's a busy Friday. Let's get to the drivers. And we do begin in Afghanistan, where Taliban fighters are advancing towards the capital, have claimed two of their biggest prizes yet. The country's second largest city, Kandahar, and the capital of Helmand province, Lashkagar. The militant group released video of victory celebrations in Kandahar. CNN can't confirm its authenticity. The Taliban, though, now control 14 of the country's 34 provincial capitals. Western governments are urging their citizens to leave Afghanistan immediately. Clarissa Ward reports from Kabul. All these provincial capitals have fallen. Kandahar, the second largest city in the country, a a city with huge strategic significance, huge spiritual symbolism for the Taliban. That used to be the capital of their Islamic emirate. And yet we are not hearing anything from the government about how they plan to deal with this situation. As a result of that, we're seeing the U.S. taking uh, swift action. We know those 3,000 U.S. troops arriving in country here today and 
and tomorrow they are going to be withdrawing U.S. Embassy uh, personnel on military aircraft to get them out of here as the security situation continues to deteriorate. We don't know yet how many of them uh, are being evacuated, and they're not using the word evacuate, but from here on the ground, that's very much what it looks like, an evacuation. And there is widespread panic here in Kabul as people really try to work out what on earth they're going to do next, whether they can stay, how can they leave, where can they go for safety. Uh, we've been contacted by a number of people desperate to get out of the country. A lot of also international actors, NGO workers, etc., already boarding planes and leaving the country. Clarissa Ward there and CNN's international security editor Nick Peyton Walsh joins us once again. Nick, good to have you with us. As Clarissa used the word there and I'll use it too, it feels like an evacuation. One can only imagine what it feels to the troops, to the citizens on the ground that now are looking over the coming days and wondering what does come next. Nick, what does? It is. Look, first of all, let's just remind ourselves that approximately a week ago I was sitting in this chair talking about the fall of the first provincial capital. Now we seem to have got to about 17, which include the second and third largest cities, Herat and Kandahar. Startling how this has rolled on quite so fast. The American deployment does two things. It sends a signal, certainly, that they're getting out of town, make no doubt about that. Uh, But they are doing it with the deployment of a very large number of troops, uh, more actually than they were initially withdrawing as part of their decision to get out of Afghanistan. It's a practical security decision, certainly, but it will create possibly something of a security bubble in parts of Kabul while that goes underway. It's unclear if the Taliban will choose to target American troops. They've certainly told them to get out. So some possibility uh, for tension there, although the Marines will bring with them enablers, air power, etc., to protect themselves and the process they go through, which may also include getting out tens of thousands of Afghans who've been assistance to the US. There is a possible room here, and I've been hearing lots of signals this afternoon, for diplomacy to come in. The U.S. have long held out the idea that they could possibly persuade uh, the presidential administration in Kabul to accept a transitional government to maybe engineer a ceasefire. It's felt like a pipe dream for a number of months and possibly more so even now as we see essentially the next target for the Taliban being Kabul. But you do have to wonder whether this deployment of U.S. forces buys a little bit of time for diplomacy to possibly work. None of that, though, removes from the extraordinary dynamic here of the U.S. not only saying we are leaving period full stop, reducing their air support to Afghan security forces, watching them crumble, then announcing that they will be essentially pulling their people out to minimal levels as quickly as possible. And then it seems, wondering really what might come next. It's fairly obvious that the capital will be under intense pressure at some point in the next weeks. Whether or not there is a negotiated way out of that, I don't really know, Julia. And I think it is remarkable, 24 hours ago, the debate was when or not Kabul might find itself pressured. Now a lot of questions are being asked as to whether, frankly, the best way through this is to avoid a fight for the capital and try and negotiate a way that the Taliban feel they have their uh, hands on the levers of power. Yeah, lack of available options forces that point about uh, diplomacy and perhaps a transition too. Nick Peyton Walsh there. Thank you so much, as always, for your wisdom on this. Okay, let's move on to China now, where the world's third busiest port is partly closed after a worker tested positive for COVID-19. 
The government has also issued toughened up and has also toughened up its guidelines. My apologies for the wearing of face masks as it tries to overcome its worst outbreak in more than a year. David Culver is live in Beijing with the latest. David, I think what we have to understand here, and I just reiterate what I said there because I was a little bit mumbled with the words or muddled. Um, one worker has tested positive. A quarter of one of the largest ports in the world has been drawn to a standstill as a result. I mean, it says a number of things about the challenges of global trade caused by this, but also, again, this response that China goes to zero tolerance when they find a case. You said it. I was going to hit on that right off the top. One freight worker. That's what shuts down a massive portion of what is, as you pointed out, the third busiest port in the world. It's busiest based on container traffic. It's actually the biggest when it comes to the amount of tonnage that goes through there. So it is significant, and it's going to speak economically what they're willing to do and sacrifice in order to stop the spread of this Delta-linked variant. It's caused a lot of issues here as far as the targeted lockdowns returning, stricter measures back in place. You're starting to see gyms and bars and and restaurants close in some of these medium and high-risk areas, and you have residents who are once again sealed inside their homes. That's kind of the equivalent of what we saw at a much larger scale in Wuhan, but still for those residents in those certain communities, it's just as brutal. It's something they're used to seeing others really deal with, but now it's hitting all over the country, including right here in Beijing. And you mentioned the new mask policies, Julia. Those are back in place. What's interesting about the mask policy here is the policy tends to come after the practice is already in place. By that, I mean people have already been putting their masks on as soon as this Delta-linked variant started to spread. The social acceptance here is very different than, say, what you would experience in the West or in places like the U.S., where it tends to be politicized. Here, folks put it on. Whether you tell them or not, they like to have it. Julia? Yeah, and it has an immediate impact on activity, on output for the country on growth. And we've seen analysts like Goldman Sachs this week slashing their growth forecast for this quarter based on this immediate response. It's quite interesting, David, that we've now also got, as much as you can trust what what we're hearing from the Chinese authorities, the numbers now in terms of the proportion of the population that they vaccinated. They're around 55%, I believe, of total population, 93% in Beijing. I just wonder if there's any discussion going on there of whether there needs to be a transition away from this policy of zero tolerance. And at some point, you just have to get on with it when you're confident that you've vaccinated enough people. Yeah, you would think and perhaps even open the borders eventually, but they don't want to move away from this zero tolerance approach to any new cases. They are so adamant about it that there was even a teacher, Julia, in Yangzhou in one of the hot spots right now that's dealing with its own outbreak. And that teacher posted online a suggestion that perhaps China needs to coexist and speaking specifically about his own city with the virus. And that was to say maybe this zero tolerance, the zero cases is not realistic. That post got him in trouble. 15 days was he was detained he had to post apology online and, and, and say he was sorry for doing that and sorry for going against what the country is pushing forward to do. And that speaks volumes. Also, we've seen some 70 officials, according to state media, be punished or fired because they happen to be the ones who are in charge of a city or jurisdiction or business area that is dealing with an outbreak and not massive numbers, thousands like you would see in places like the U.S., sometimes just single digits 
and they're fired from their jobs. That's how serious they're taking it. And you do mention the vaccination. That is interesting. We've been waiting for these numbers for the first time. We're hearing that 55%, according to the government here, of this population, a massive population of 1.4 billion people, has been fully vaccinated. That's what they're now saying. That translates to 777 million people, and the numbers are going up. And right here in Beijing, yeah, 93% of those 18 and older. It's incredible. Yeah, it's truly incredible what we've seen this kind of feat done in China before, the beauty of a control economy, a command economy. Um, David, thank you for that report. Great to have you as always. Have a good weekend. David Culver. All right, Disney saying the Delta variant may weigh on results going forward, but for now, tourists are flocking back to its theme parks and shares are up more than 4% pre-market after a strong earnings beat. The stay-at-home and reopening portions of its business both performing well. The Disney Plus streaming service now has a stunning 116 million subscribers. Lots of beauty versus very little beast in these numbers. And Brian Stelter is here Always a beauty to speak to you, Brian. Talk us through these numbers because it is quite fascinating, despite some of the concerns that we on CNN are talking about as we see COVID cases rise, at least as far as Disney's concerned. It's OK on all parts of the business for them. And, and the results are showing it. I think the biggest headline was about the parks because, yeah. uh, of course, the, the shutdown in 2020 was so severe. And there was, there was so much pent up demand among Disney fans who wanted to get back to the parks from Orlando uh, to California to, to Shanghai, all around the world. People wanted to get back into these parks, wanted to get back to these hotels. And that is what Disney is showing in this quarterly earnings report. They are at the same time warning of uncertainty ahead, however, saying that the, the next few months could be very bumpy uh, given the Delta variant. So Disney, you know, uh, clearly very exposed to COVID in this situation, but also benefiting uh, from a recovery in the U.S. and elsewhere. And of course, all part of this as well, they continue to benefit. And this was a sort of lockdown phenomenon that we've seen, but it's continuing the subscriber growth that they're seeing for Disney Plus. Um, Who doesn't love a Disney movie? But India also a a great spot for them as well. And obviously has been very much challenged or was challenged during the quarter with um, with COVID and the way that they saw there. But obviously it plays to one of the big stories that we've spoken about over the last few weeks, and that is the challenges that they've faced with talent like Scarlett Johansson saying, hang on a second, you've hurt me with pushing and promoting my movie on uh, Disney Plus rather than right. just putting it in the theatres. What did they say about that, if anything, and negotiations with talent? Bob Chapak basically suggested that Scarlett Johansson is the exception, she's the aberration. He said, since COVID has begun, we've entered into hundreds of talent arrangements, and by and large, they've gone very, very smoothly. So he's trying to suggest, you know, there's one thorn in the side of Disney, and that'll get resolved through the legal process, but that all the other talent relationships are just peachy. I think the truth is a little more complicated. There are certainly other A-list stars that are worried about uh, the revenue breakdowns here. But when you look at the streaming numbers for Disney Plus, you see the future. Uh, this company was at 103 million relationships three months ago, now 116 million. So look at the growth in just three months, you know, 13 million new homes signing up. As you mentioned, a lot of those in India, 40% of these signups in India with Star. But Disney is firing on all streaming cylinders. Hulu also showing growth. Uh, it's, it's really creating this flywheel where people have to stay subscribed because there's new shows premiering every week or every month. And there's new movies available every week or every month. Yes, there is explosive Disney sparkle 
in these numbers. Right now, they feel like they're back, well and truly back. Brian Stelter, thank you so much for that. Samsung's vice chairman has been released from a South Korean prison on parole. Lee Jae-yong has been convicted of bribery and embezzlement, but was let out after business leaders argued his influence was vital to the country's economy. CNN's Paula Hancock's reports. The de facto leader of Samsung is a free man once again this Friday. He uh, left the detention center uh, on Friday morning to many supporters outside calling his name. He did stop uh, to, uh, to make a, a speech to them saying that he was sorry for what had happened. Now, he had been sentenced and, uh, and found guilty of, uh, of embezzlement and also of bribery. This was part of uh, a massive influence peddling um, scandal, uh, which actually brought down uh, the former president, Park Geun-hye. She is also currently serving a prison sentence. Uh, but uh, J.Y. Lee has been given and granted early parole. So he's served about 18 months, just over of a 30-month prison sentence. Now, the argument that his supporters were giving for him uh, to be released was that it was in the national interest that he needed to be present within his company uh, to uh, to deal with future investments. Samsung is a massive part of the South Korean economy, uh, saying that it was in the national interest. We've heard that as well from the Blue House, the presidential office, saying that they understand both sides of the argument, but they have had to accept that it was in the national interest. But not everybody is happy that he has been allowed to have this early parole. Uh, we heard from the opposition party, the Justice uh, Party, saying that they are furious to find out that South Korea is a republic of Samsung, saying uh, that it is uh, just tramping on all fairness within the country, that there's one rule uh, for the elite and another rule when it comes to the law uh, for others. Now, this has happened many times in the past. There have been chief executives of, of rich and powerful and influential companies within this country who have been found guilty of crimes, who have gone to prison and who have been let out early. This has happened once again, although uh, J.Y. Lee has served a, a significant amount of his, uh, his prison uh, sentence. But for some in this country, it simply wasn't enough. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. 22 people have been arrested in Algeria, accused of lighting deadly wildfires across the country. At least 69 people have been killed in the fires. Wildfires in Greece are tapering off, though, thanks to rain and cooler temperatures. The fires have destroyed hundreds of homes and businesses and around 65,000 hectares of forest since the start of August. In the English city of Plymouth, police say a shooting spree left at least six people dead, including the suspect and a child. The attacks, which took place in multiple locations, are the UK's deadliest mass shootings in 11 years. Police name the shooter as 22-year-old Jake Davison. Britney Spears' father, Jamie Spears, says he intends to step down as conservator of the singer's $60 million estate. It follows months of public pressure from supporters of Britney and from the pop star herself, who has called the conservatorship cruelty and abuse. Football star Leo Messi has started training with his new club, PSG. He joined teammates, including Neymar, in drills and warm-ups earlier Friday. PSG play at home against Strasbourg on Saturday, but Messi is not expected to be in the team just yet. Okay, still to come here on First Move, global stars working to tackle a global crisis. We speak to the founder of a major new fundraising event for COVID relief in India and also hear from a music icon who's taking part. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move.
Welcome back to First Move. The Dow and the S&P remain on track to hit fresh records in early trading this Friday. And it's a Friday frolic for, for Bitcoin, too. It's up more than 5% intraday, now up some 60% this year. That clearly has been volatile. Bitcoin believers say we could retake that $50,000 a Bitcoin level soon. More big news, though, in the crypto world as Polly retrieves what was pilfered or plundered. Hackers have transferred back nearly all of the $600 million they snatched from the Poly Network platform this week, although Polly is still trying to access much of it. This week's hack was the largest crypto heist on record, and we're still trying to find out who was behind the theft. Some say it was done merely for fun. The hackers themselves, of course, said they did it for educational purposes. Hmm. Okay, let's move on. Following the UN's code red warning on climate change this week, it's safe to say we need to dramatically speed up clean tech innovation. Well, California startup Arc has joined the effort. It plans to build an electric sports boat, but that's just the beginning. It says it will then apply the technology to larger craft. Joining us now is the co-founder and CEO of Arc Boats, Mitch Lee. Mitch, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain what this boat costs and what the technology is behind it. Well, starting with the cost is a is a tough one, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you <laughs> Which is why I did it. Um, yeah. uh, so this is our first boat uh, that we are bringing to market. It's called the Arc One. It's actually available for pre-order right now, arcboats.com. Um, it is a very high-performance boat. This uh, We put a massive battery pack in it. It's actually for reference, call it twice the size of the largest Tesla battery pack out there. It has a massive motor in it. This thing can zip. It is going to be a lot of fun. And we are doing that because we want to get people excited about electric boats in a way that they haven't been before. And that's kind of the starting point for us to expand into the broader market of uh, all of water sport boats. And then from there, taking that technology and, as you mentioned, expanding it to um, areas outside of just water sports. So um, going after larger boats, even smaller ones, uh, and eventually getting to the point where all the boats on the water are electric. I mean, we're talking about an electric motor, you've said, with at least 475 horsepower, it's a uh, 800-volt battery pack. Where yes. is it going to be in the boat? Uh, so this is one of the cool aspects of the boat that we're building is these battery packs are laid up underneath the floor. They are structural elements of the boat. So um, you, you get a lot more space back in the boat by, again, removing this ginormous gas engine that typically sits in the middle or towards the rear of the boat um, and replacing it by these flat battery packs, similar to what you see in electric cars today. Um, so the motor, the battery packs, everything will be underneath the floor um, and it will be in inboard. So kind of that motor sits in the middle of the boat. So I've spoken to some boating enthusiasts about this, and um, I didn't mention the price like you haven't, but we'll get back to it in the beginning of the discussion. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> don't worry, we'll get back there. And they were sort of like, oh, when I mentioned the price, they were like, for that price, and it's $300,000, yes. they said, I want something that goes faster than 400 Mile, uh, sorry, 440 miles per hour. And I also want something that's got a bigger range than just four hours, because if I want to travel on this thing or go and visit an island or something and I have a problem, the risk is I can't get back. So for $300,000, convince me why someone yes. who has that kind of money should be buying this boat. So, so there are a few tiers uh, to, to think about this through, or lenses, I guess. The first one is, this is a limited edition boat. 
This is our very first boat that we're bringing to market. It's going to be something special. There's nothing that exists like it on the market right now. So if you are excited about the future of electric boating, this is the boat to get. Now, the, the range that we want to target is a full day of usage on the water. But one of the important things to point out is that this is a freshwater boat uh, where you are not going far from shore. Um, so again, this think U.S. water sport market. Uh, maybe the biggest body of water you're on is Lake Tahoe, uh, where you can easily get back to any shore point, uh, even with a minimal amount of battery life left on this boat. So there's no real range anxiety like there might be with a car. It is very possible uh, to get back to any marina with even a small amount of charge. And then the final point here is, um, this is just the starting point for us. Mm. We will continue to improve from here. The customers we're looking for for this first boat are people that are excited about the future of the company, excited about the future of the industry that want to come along with us for for this ride. Um, but again, yeah. I, I guess that my counterpoint there would be, uh, we are targeting that full day of usage, and then you have all night or all week to recharge it before using it again. Yeah, and, and literally, you want them to come along for the ride. You always need to target investors, right. I think, for this one as well. Because um, clearly, and what it feels like is that you use the money that you raise with the sales of these initial and, and the early boats that you produce. And you can tell me how quickly people will be able to get their hands on them. And then you use that money to invest in the R&D to ultimately, I assume, bring the price right down and expand the range, as you're, as you're saying. Exactly, exactly. So these ARC-1 boats will go for sale by the end of the year. We will start delivering them to customers early next year. So this is not a far off dream. This is something that you uh, can get in a matter of months rather than years. Um, and yes, we are going to use this as the basis to improve and, and funnel money into research and development, bring the cost down so that we can get to a more mass market boat very quickly. And and just very quickly, Mitch, what's it made out of? Just explain the benefits of this beyond the fact that it's green, which is the, the clear point here versus another boat of this size, for example. Yeah. So I think one thing that sets our boat apart is it is built by a team of literal rocket engineers. Um, everyone on the team but myself has had prior experience building rockets before. The team specializes in building these large scale structures, making them very lightweight and doing it on a very fast timeline. Um, so that's kind of one of our one of our advantages here is uh, that team that we have assembled to do this. The boat will be made out of aluminum, which is uh, not a typical material to use for this size of boat, but it gives us an advantage because uh, it's lightweight, it's mm. strong, we can build everything in-house and we can kind of integrate those battery packs like I talked about. Yeah, and cheaper than carbon fiber as well. And I know it creates a wake yes. as well. So if you want to water ski behind it, you also can as well. Um, great exactly. to hear about it. Big price tag, big expectations. Mitch, come back and talk to us, please, when one of these is on the water and we can have a look at how it goes. Great to chat We'll to do. You. We'll have to have you out to ride one. Oh, now that is a date. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch Lee. Great to chat Thank to you, co-founder and CEO of Arc Boats. Can't get lost in a lake. It's perfect for me. We'll back up to this. 
Welcome back to First Move. US, US stocks are up and running on this last trading day of the week. Good job. I don't think I'm going to make another day the way I keep stumbling. And we have green arrows across the board, fresh records for the Dow and the S&P 500. Disney is a top blue chip gainer. Its shares rallying after a big Q3 earnings beat. Disney, however, not immune to Delta variant fears. Executives saying Delta could impact results going forward, calling the outlook uncertain. Delta already beginning to upend Hollywood's fall release schedule too. Sony Pictures has announced that it's delaying the release of its latest Venom film by another month from mid-September into October. And vaccine makers, meanwhile, are moving higher early on in the session today. The U.S. has greenlighted a third vaccine dose for some people who are immunocompromised. Just them for now, but clearly it means demand for more doses. Okay, moving on to an entirely different asset class now. And earlier this week, investors snapped up sports memorabilia in the form of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, featuring sports stars like Tom Brady, Naomi Osaka and Tiger Woods. They were sold on the sports betting firm DraftKings Marketplace. And just to remind you, once again, NFTs are one-of-a-kind digital collectibles where ownership is recorded on a blockchain. And here's an example of some of those things that were sold. Joining us now, once again, Dylan Rosenblatt, CEO and co-founder of Autograph. Dylan, thank you so much for making time. Our regular viewers will know that uh, Leo Messi scotched you earlier on in the week. And we will start where we began earlier this week as well, which was... Just explain what these products and these launches mean for sports memorabilia fans. What are they actually getting their hands on here? You're going to get your hands on. Well, first, thank you for having me, Julia. It was Welcome. crazy being cut off by Matt. Time, but, <laughs> no, <laughs> upstage. Yeah, be, uh, <laughs> a lot of fun. But um, these actual, these are going to be real, authentic sports collectibles co-produced by Autograph. And in the example of our sales this week, Autograph and Tom Brady. He's the co-chairman and co-founder of the company. It's been incredible working with him, but we take that same approach to working with all of our talent partners. We sit down, figure out something that's meaningful to them and their career, co-produce the actual artwork, and then they have the ability afterwards to add individual and personal unique signatures to each of the collectibles, which we think is a pretty amazing and compelling approach to using the capabilities of the blockchain to provide a compelling collectible offering. I mean, one of the things I think that that still mystifies most people about these things, and certainly when we saw these being created in the art world, and you're talking about digital images being made, is where do you view them? Where where do you look at them? It's not like a piece of art that you can put on the wall and admire when you walk past. What do you actually do with these things, Dylan? I think the future viewing applications, they're going to be in a lot of different places. You look at the mixed reality spaces, you look at the metaverses, that's down the line. But today, I think they're viewable on your phone. They're viewable on any TV and existing screen in your house. Instead of having to take somebody somewhere to show them the collection, you can bring it with you anywhere you want from the pool to the top of a mountain. I could show you my autograph collection in my wallet. And I think that's pretty compelling because all of the digital assets you own are extremely versatile and the ability to show them anywhere actually I think is a benefit of owning them in the digital world. Yeah, I have friends that collect these and they've they've actually bought what looks like big TV screens and they just upload whatever it is their digital art on there. So it's like a picture, but obviously it moves or whatever it, it provides. So I, I do see the translation. You just have to see it in practice really first. Part of the idea of the purchase of this though too is it could be a good investment like any kind of sports memorabilia in this case going forward how are you creating a secondary market for people to perhaps one day be able to exchange these or swap these or sell these in the future 
we truly look at this as just a collector's item. And that's the place, and that's how everyone views it. That's how we talk about it to the talent. And there are places where you can buy and sell and trade NFTs on the existing market. If you look at some of the biggest players, and if you look at the DraftKings marketplace that we're excited to sell our memorabilia on, the users will be able to buy and sell what they own. And overall, we just look at this as the same mechanism as selling any other collectible. You know, we had um, Gary Vee, who's being seen as a bit of an NFT Svengali on the show a couple of times. And he said to us, 99% of these non-fungible tokens are going to be worthless in a few years. And you have to pick really carefully. For, for people that are looking to invest in these things, do you see this specific marketplace with sports memorabilia? I know Tom Brady, of course, is also a founder of, of Autograph, of, of your platform. Um, do you see something different in this compared to the 99% of NFTs that he was talking about that are just going to be a gimmick and a fad and won't be worth anything in the future? I appreciate that question because that's where I think Autograph is so different. We've aligned an incredible team. We have tens and ten, we have tons of employees here that are all dedicated to providing an incredible and long-term experience for our users. This is in no way a, crash, a cash grab or a one-time sale. We actually have multi-year exclusive deals with all of our talent partners and with all of our content library. So we'll be able to actually produce an, a collectible experience that is relevant tomorrow and is relevant three to five years from now. So I think it's actually the approach of our company that's going to allow our collectibles to be loved and to be valuable to the owner over the long term. So when people say to you, is this just a way for Tom Brady, for example, who is a huge sports star, let's be clear, in the United States and beyond, um, just a way to sort of cash in on his brand, you're saying this is something completely different. Completely different. This is the new era of collecting. The blockchain has made digital collecting possible, fun, publicly verifiable, all the incredible things that go along with blockchain technology go along with digital collecting. And Autograph wants to be at the forefront of that and produce official digital collections from the way that we handle uh, signatures, them all being individually and personally signed, which takes a lot of time out of the talent's day to the actual co-production and the highest quality possible of this content. We're taking every step possible to ensure that, that these things are authentic, fun, and designed to be really cool pieces of memorabilia that just happen to live digitally first and foremost. Most important question, and I'm leaving it right to the end. How much does one of these things cost? We were just showing some images there of, of Tom Brady and the NFT itself. How much is that going to cost approximately? What, what do you estimate? On Wednesday, the primary sales started down at $12, 12 Tom's jersey number, all the way up to $100. But today, we actually have our individual and yes. personal signed edition drop, the Tom Brady signature drop, where the starting price is $250 and the top price is $1,500. And these are because they're signed individually by Tom Brady in the first edition of real autographed collectibles. So we think these are incredibly unique offering. And we're just diving into the market and learning and testing and trying to provide the best experience for our consumers. And I would say next week, I'm excited. we're excited about what's to come as well as we roll out our next major athlete and their preseason access passes. Uh -huh. Very quickly, what did Naomi Osaka's go for earlier this week? Naomi Osaka's actually haven't sold yet, but we're really excited for mm. the Naomi launch to come. Interesting. Okay, Dylan, fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much for explaining this as well, because I think for most people, their eyes sort of glaze over, but it's good to understand what's going on. Dylan Rosenblatt, CEO and co-founder at Autograph there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
Next on First Move, proving that we are truly a global family, we speak to a member of the iconic pop group Sister Sledge, who are part of a major fundraising effort to help India in its COVID crisis and beyond. Welcome back to First Move and to India now, where the pandemic has seen more than 32 million people infected with COVID. It's put enormous strain on hospitals, which have been running out of critical supplies and thrust countless families into poverty and hunger as their incomes vanished. This Sunday, which will be Independence Day in India, Bollywood stars will join music icons like Mick Jagger, Ed Sheeran, Annie Lennox and Sister Sledge featuring its legendary for We for India, a three-hour Facebook event to raise funds for COVID relief across the nation. Debbie Sledge from Sister Sledge joins us now alongside Natasha Mudha, founder of The World We Want and the creator of Sunday's events. Ladies, fantastic to have you with me. Um, Natasha, I want to begin with you. I think the whole world was watching India go through the second wave crisis and then the attention shifts. But the devastation that it leaves and continues to leave remains. Just explain what you wanted to achieve with this event. Yes, no, so thank you. Um, I think we all saw and witnessed um, the the devastation that India was facing during the, especially the, during the second pandemic. And I think during the time when you had loads of, um, you know, stories and I have a lot of friends and um, family members and colleagues out in India as well. And every other day we were getting phone calls like, you know, my uncle's passed away or my uncle needs an oxygen cylinder, etc. That understandably was imperative. And it was the call, you know, the need of the hour to get those oxygen cylinders there to save lives. But the idea behind the fundraiser is the fact that whilst we focus on saving lives, you know, we cannot forget the post-COVID impact, the legacy that COVID has as well, the devastation that it's creating uh, for lives around the world. Then you started to hear very quickly stories of COVID orphans, COVID widows, uh, the economic impact when people were losing their jobs due to the second uh, pandemic. So that uh, encouraged me you know, to think of this idea to create a fundraiser, a global fundraiser, inviting um, entertainers and icons like Debbie Sledge from around the world um, to stand with and for India during its time of need to raise vital funds to support co- post-COVID missions and hence, we came up with the idea for We for India. Uh, I approached a very good friend of mine, Shivashish Sarkar, who is the group CEO of Reliance Entertainment. We co-produced the event. And we have over 100 global artists coming together. And the global is really important because I, I think it reminds you that um, the pandemic spared nobody. It's so non-discriminatory and it didn't, it didn't matter if you're a man or a woman, what your, the color of your skin was what your social status was, it affected everybody. And that's why the fundraiser aims to bring everyone, everyone together to stand with and for India during its time of need. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. Debbie, come in here because uh, I know it truly is a family affair where your participation is concerned. And actually, we were just showing our viewers, uh, members of your family singing. A, a number of our audience will, of course, remember you from Sister Sledge, but I know it's far bigger than that. Obviously, Sister Sledge featuring Sledgendary expands it to, to other members of your family. Just explain what it means to participate in, in this. So we feel very, very honoured and we're very um, grateful to Natasha for inviting us to join this effort, this, it, it's very important to us also. I think it's uh, it's part of, of, of who we are, and that is 
a family and we are we're part of a world family and when one of us is hurting we all have to come together that's what families do so it's and it's very important to us um and we're very grateful uh to be a part of the the we for india and the world we want we've seen the devastation there's no one who is who is uh um exempt from it um so we have to pull together and so we're just glad yeah i mean i think whenever i hear the sister sledge song on the on the um on the radio you know we are family i think there couldn't be a better anthem quite frankly for for this moment and the need for all of us to pull together um natasha i think one of the things that holds people back from donating money for causes like this is that they are not sure where the money's going to go. They're not sure that the money's going to find the right people and go to the right places. So I guess the critical question here is, how do you ensure those that you want to donate, and this is why you're doing this, you want to raise donations and, and raise money, that the money will get to the right places and to the people who need it most? And of course, the most important thing, how do people donate? Absolutely. So that's why we have one of um, India's largest, in fact, it's India's largest donation platform, Give India on board as our donations partner. So they will channel uh, the funds to all of the relevant causes, working with various other NGOs on ground, working on their own initiatives on ground as well to deploy those funds. And we're very clear. I mean, the name of the event is We for India, Saving Lives, Protecting Livelihoods. So the funds are kind of divided along those sort of uh, areas as well. So the saving lives aspect is ensuring those funds are uh, to provide critical facilities such as those oxygen concentrators, the cylinders, ICU units, right through to funding vaccination centers as well. As well, and the um, the livelihoods aspect is everything from pro- providing humanitarian F- uh, relief, from providing even cash support uh, for members of a family who you know who've who've, uh, who've had members of their family sadly passed away due to COVID as well. So there is a very stringent pro- process in place. There's a there's you know they obviously have a very um, credible board as well to to ensure that there's full accountability and to ensure those funds reach the individuals that it needs to. Uh, and in terms of donating, I mean, it's, 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 it's the event is this Sunday. We're streaming live globally on Facebook. Um, so you'll be able to see us um, 10 o'clock Eastern time um, for, for viewers in America. And um, yeah, so everything is set up there on the Give India page. If you just type We for India, you'll find our donations page. And yeah, it's very open and available for everybody to participate. Fantastic. And we're just showing you some of the people that are going to be participating and then performing. And Debbie, really quickly, I have to ask you, are you going to be singing We Are Family? Because I, I sort of gave you the big rise there and then didn't ask you. Of course, of course. Of course. We're going to be singing. Amazing. Amazing. I look forward to it. Both of you, thank you so much for your time and good luck on Sunday. And um, let's pray that you um, raise lots of money for um, the people that need it. Thank you both. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. As we mentioned earlier on the show, just days ago, the UN reported that global temperatures are rising faster than expected and that without action, we will start seeing a severe impact on areas such as food production. A centre in Dubai Desert has been using cutting-edge techniques with the aim of growing food in the harshest of conditions to see how industries may need to adapt. Nina Dos Santos has more. Extreme temperatures, sandy soils, and low-quality water sources. It all makes the desert a very tough place to grow food. 
That is, unless you're a salicornia, like this one, battling the brutal conditions and giving us a taste at what farming will look like in the future. Salicornia is a desert superhero in terms of the salinity that it can tolerate and survive under such kind of harsh conditions. Challenging the types of food that can grow in the desert is the meat and potatoes of the International Centre for Biosaline Agriculture in Dubai. Here, they're on a global hunt for nutritious, heat-resistant crops that can grow in the harshest conditions. By using saline water resources and sandy soils, we can grow crops in an unconventional way to boost the food production on a local level. There's real urgency to this work. Extreme weather events and limited fresh water sources pose a real threat to global food supply. The centre boasts a unique collection of more than 13,000 seeds from all over the world. In the case of quinoa, the team tested 1,200 variations and found five that can grow in the desert. From research to practice, the centre has programmes across the Middle East and in North Africa, and it has big plans for salicornia. We are looking into developing salicornia-based food products, salicornia-based burgers, biscuits, crackers, hoping for these products to be introduced in the market quite soon. Today, 41 million people are currently on the brink of famine. With farming lands turning into deserts, new agriculture techniques are a real option for feeding the hungry. Countries and businesses will make choices about how they want to incorporate different growing systems. We're going to have a role for almost every different type of cropping system and every different growing technique in different parts of the world. As climate change intensifies, smart farming techniques like ICBAs prove that to achieve food security, adapting is the only way forward. Nina Dos Santos, CNN. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll see you next week. Have a safe weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.